but we opened a series in the book of Jonah last week, uh, in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and guess what? We're going to be back in the same verses this week, because listen, though I'm an older dog, okay, I'm trying to learn some new tricks, um, and I am trying not to cram too much into one Sunday for your sake and for mine. And so we come back to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 this morning to consider what's going on, not looking at Jonah's past, but looking at where Jonah is in the present and where God is commissioning him to in Jonah's response. But in Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. Many of you know that my the home that I grew up in in southwest Louisiana was destroyed uh, about a year and a half ago by Hurricane Laura whenever it came up through the Gulf. Um, large, large oak trees collapsed on top of that home and crushed it from the roof all the way down to the sill beams. They were cracked and the foundation was all wonky and so they tore the entire house down and my parents rebuilt on that same property in that same location. They closed on the house the week of Thanksgiving and so we went down and helped them do some stuff, install some stuff, and move some stuff in at Christmas. And whenever we drove up uh, and pulled into the driveway, I saw out of the road there was this large piece of cement that was just sitting there. And I knew what it was because the old house, just behind the old house, there was, used to be an old well that was there. Um, so before city water came down my parents' street, they drew water out of a well that had been dug and tapped there just behind the house. Uh, but whenever city water and sewer came in, uh, they hooked up to the city water system so that we could have city water, right? And so what they did with that old well, though, because they had young children, in order to ensure that they weren't finding themselves in a position where one of us went missing and we were down at the bottom of that thing, they had someone come in and put a cap over top of that old well. They poured a cement cap. Or, or lid or seal over top of it so that we wouldn't find ourselves down at the bottom of it. But whenever they poured that cement cap on top of that well, what they were doing, one, for our protection, but they were also cutting themselves off from the source of the life-giving water that lie beneath in that well. And listen, church, every time we, like Jonah, decide that we're going to flee from the presence of the Lord, that we're going to run away from God, that we're going to put a cap on our yes to God. In other words, God, this far, but no further. I will follow you to this point, but not beyond it. Every time we put a cap on our yes to the Lord, we end up cutting ourselves off from what the psalmist describes in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, as the fullness of joy and eternal pleasures that are in the presence of God. We cut ourselves off from the presence of God whenever we cap our yes to Him. And so this morning, as we look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 again, what I want to appeal to you to do is to uncap your yes to the Lord. 
so that you can experience the fullness of joy, so that you can experience the pleasures forevermore that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 16. Uncap your yes to the Lord. Now you say, where do you see that in the passage? Let me show you where it comes from in Jonah chapter 1. The first word of Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, in our English translations, reads this way. Almost exclusively, depending on what translation you have, it reads this way, but... But, you know what that word but means? It means there's a contrast here. There's a contrast between what God has commissioned Jonah to do and how Jonah responds. Those two things are different from one another. And the author is contrasting them. Now because of Jonah's history of fruitfulness and faithfulness as a prophet, everyone reading the book of Jonah Right? It, particularly the early audience in this text would expected, have expected there to be a so rather than a but. In other words, God commissions Jonah, so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. But God commissions Jonah, and the author says, but Jonah rose and went to Joppa to get on a ship to sail to Tarshish. That's where Jonah runs to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, the text tells us that where he goes, and Tarshish, most scholars believe that Tarshish would have been located somewhere in modern-day Spain. Now, I want to give you a little context for where Jonah is, where God is sending, and where Jonah goes. Let's throw this map up here right, to show you what's going on with Jonah. So Jonah leaves where he's at in the northern kingdom of Israel, goes down to Joppa. God's sending Jonah to Nineveh, which is about 550 miles away from where he was in the northern kingdom. But Jonah gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles away from where God was commissioning him to go. And in his day, do you know where modern-day Spain would have been? It would have been the ends of the earth. As far as he could imagine going to get away from where God was sending him. So Jonah is running as far as he can possibly imagine from where God was was calling and commissioning him to go as he flees from God's presence. Where the text tells us multiple times that the reason Jonah runs is to flee the presence of the Lord, to flee the presence of the Lord. And we may look at what's going on here and go, why does Jonah go so far out of his way to flee from the presence of the Lord? Doesn't he know Psalm 139? Right? Hasn't he read Psalm 139? Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, there is nowhere on the face of the earth, no matter how fast you run or how far you flee, where you can escape God's presence. Because God, as the theologians say, is omnipresent. In other words, He is everywhere. He is not limited like you and I. I can be in one place at one time, and God can be everywhere at any time. So God is on. Doesn't Jonah know that? Well, of course Jonah knows that. So as Sinclair Ferguson says, listen, Jonah is not fleeing God's omnipresence. He is fleeing God's felt presence. His felt presence. He's fleeing from that place where God has met him. 
He's fleeing from that place where God has called him and commissioned him. He's fleeing from that place where God gets in Jonah's face and challenges his assumptions about who is worthy of God's mercy and who is not. Jonah is fleeing from that experience that we've all had of conviction. When God takes his thumb and, and anthropomorphically, right, and puts it on our heart and begins to press on a certain aspect or area of our life, that nagging nudge in our souls, that place where God was speaking and Jonah had no desire to hear what God was saying. That's what Jonah's running from when he flees from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you're a parent of a child this morning, you know this experience very well, okay? You know it very well. As a toddler, I can remember with my kids, they're now 14 and 10, but I remember whenever they were toddlers, And they would be wandering around the house and they would pick up something that they had no business having in their hands, right? Something that had gotten left out. And you would tell them, you would give them an instruction, a very clear instruction to set it down or hand it to you. And so what you would get in response to that is one of three things. Is they would shake their head like this because they knew what that meant, right? Or when they could vocalize the word N-O, they would say, no, Or what you got was this experience, right? So they would have their hand on something that they had no business holding on to. And you would say, hand it to me. And they would look at you in the eye and they would turn around and they would run as far and as fast as they could with that saggy diaper flopping in the wind to get away from you because they didn't want to hear what you had to say. Listen, church, that is the natural fallen bent that every single one of us has. When God shows up and convicts and challenges and says things that we don't want to hear, we want to try to escape his felt presence just like Jonah. See, Jonah puts a cap on his yes He said, I'm going to seal that thing over and say this far, no further. And you and I, we do the same thing. And so I have a question for you this morning. Where in your life are you running from the Lord? Where have you capped your yes to God? For some of us, it may be God's call to salvation. We put a cap on our yes to the Lord We won't respond to the good news of Jesus being more than enough for us when we can never be enough on our own. Because that forces us to lay down our pride and humble ourselves before God and say, God, as we sang earlier, I need you. I cannot do this. I cannot be who I'm supposed to be. I cannot do what I'm supposed to do. I need you to save me. And there are some who are running as far and as fast as they can in pride away from humbling themselves before God and crying out to Him as a poor man and experiencing salvation. For some, it may be God's call to covenant community pressing into the lives of other believers. Right? They believe that they have this private relationship with God. Listen, there's language that's been used in the church for a very long time around this idea of personal relationship with God, but a personal relationship with God is not a private relationship with God. Right? You are not designed to live in isolation from, but in integration with other people who share your faith in Christ. 
which is one of the reasons we hold church membership here at Redeemer High, because we believe we're supposed to be integrated, woven together into a body in which we're all interdependent upon one another. That I don't have my own private experience with God, and that's sufficient because I can't one another someone, right, as the New Testament calls me to outside of a covenant community that's bound together with shared faith in Jesus. For some of us, it's God's call to grow as a disciple. As a follower of Christ. To grow in our knowledge of Him. Right? To take the cap off of our minds. To expand our knowledge of who God is and how He has acted throughout history in His Word. Or in church history. To understand more deeply what we confess doctrinally through theological study, or perhaps through practices that we need to implement, like coming before God in prayer, fasting, silence, solitude, those disciplines which are means of grace by which God forms and shapes us. And yet we put a cap on those things and say, God, this far and no further in our lives. And so that's the reason we stay in those same ruts, never really experiencing growth or progression in our sanctification. For others, it may be the God's call to a great commission kind of life. In other words, to sacrifice and serve for the sake of taking the gospel to our neighbors. And oftentimes we run away in the polar opposite direction Rather than serving others, we have a tendency to use and consume others for our own benefit. Right, God may be leading, pressing, hey, start a new life group, start a new small group, grow in your faith with Christ, but we have this cap on our yes to God because we've got our people now and we don't want to add any people to our people. Right? We don't want to grow and multiply and expand and reach this place that God has called us. So we put a cap on our yes to God. And listen, church, putting a cap on your yes to God will hinder not only your personal growth, but will also hinder our ability to impact this community where God has planted us with the good news of the gospel. So take the cap off. Uncap your yes to the Lord. Because if we don't, if we don't, what's at stake? Second thing I want you to see in this text this morning is this, is that fleeing the presence of God unravels the image of God. Fleeing the presence of God unravels the image of God. See, throughout the Bible, you're going to find the image of the mountain being a place where God met with or encountered Him, right? A place where God came near and people came into God's presence. So in the Old Testament, you have Abraham offering Isaac where? On a mount, right? In Genesis chapter 22. In Exodus 19 and 20, you have Moses receiving the commandments and communing with God. And in Exodus, seeing God's backside glory where? On Mount Sinai. Or you have a psalm like Psalm 24. This is a psalm of ascent as people went on their annual pilgrimage to the temple. And it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place but he who has clean hands and a pure heart whose soul is not lifted up to any idol? In the Old Testament, you had these pivotal moments taking place where God met with his people on the mountain. 
In the New Testament, you have Jesus delivering the Sermon on the Mount, being transfigured on the Mount, and eventually crucified on a hill. At these monumental places where God meets with His people, you always ascended to meet with God. You always went up to meet with the Lord, to encounter Him. And so many of the saints drew near to Him and God changed their lives and their encounters and experience with Him on the mountain. And yet here in this text, in Jonah chapter 1, there is an emphasis not on Jonah's ascent to meet with the Lord, but on his descent. His departure from the presence of God and this downward spiral that Jonah enters into. In verse 3 we read, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into the ship to sail away from the presence of the Lord. In verse 5, I'll jump ahead a little bit. In verse 5 it says Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down. Jonah is progressively moving in this descent this downward spiral away from God's felt presence in his life. So he's not moving toward the Lord, moving away from him, descending, spiraling out of control. And in this descent from God's felt presence, listen, Jonah's also unraveling the image of God and the fabric of his being because when Jonah runs from the presence of the Lord, When he flees from God, he's running away from light and he's running toward darkness. Last summer, uh, we took a family vacation over to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. And while we were there, we had the opportunity to go and explore one of the natural cavern systems there that lie beneath the Smoky Mountains. And so we um, paid our fare, right? And we went down into the belly of the earth. Um, so we went down and we had the opportunity to see all kinds of things down there. We saw stalactites and we saw stalagmites, right? The ones that rise from the floor of the cave and the ones that descend down from the ceiling of the cave, right? We saw all kinds of rooms. That's what they call those big expansive spaces that you walk into. And they were, they were, they were sta- stair- stairwells that they had built and constructed on some of the more slippery uh, areas that were d- more difficult to traverse and handrails and they had light lighting systems down there but there was an underground stream that was so crystal clear that you could scoop up the water and drink it it was that pure and we were in that cavern system and saw this underground waterfall and I just kept having flashbacks to my childhood thinking of the Goonies okay and so we're exploring this cave system right and we get as far back into the cave system as they had they had explored and was navigable for the tour, tourists like us, right? So the guides are in there, they're showing us the room, talking about the room, and they get, we get way back into there, into the cave, as far down and as far away from the, 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 the entrance of the cave as possible. And I noticed two things. First of all, the further we got away from the surface, the colder it got, right? There was a drastic difference in the air temperature between where we entered that cavern system and where we were now down at the bottom of it. Probably 20 degrees difference between those two locations. But something else that I noticed, because when we got in that room, they said, okay, everybody, find a secure place to stand. And they said, take your phones, put them away in your pockets. And they said, we're going to turn off the lights. And they turned off those lights, and I tell you, it was pitch dark i'm not talking about out in the country on a new moon kind of dark 
I'm talking about can't see the hand in front of your face when you touch your nose with your palm kind of dark. There was no light at all. And of course, all the kids that are in there are like screaming, And all of us adults are trying to make sure our kids don't go sliding down this, this cave into the stalagmites that are there below to impale them. And then they flip the lights back on. And they proceed to tell us, you know, if you, if you stay in that level of darkness long enough, right, you're, eventually you will go blind. You will lose your sight. And listen, church, the longer and the further that we run from God's felt presence in our lives, and we run away from light, and we run towards darkness, and we, 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 we engage in this descent, Right? It, 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 it makes us less and less human. Like you could, you, can you imagine living in that pitch darkness, not encountering anyone? Like you'd probably come out, look, like living there for years, and you've got this beard down to your waist, blind, can't see anything, and you've lost your mind as your life becomes unraveled. And listen, for those who run away from God's felt presence, they become, they, they, they're on this downward spiral to becoming less and less and less human. That's the reality. There is this unraveling of the image of God. See, look at why Jonah runs. Jonah knows something about the Lord. Why, in other words, so why is there a but instead of a so, as we said earlier? Jonah knows that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love and faithfulness as he reveals himself in Exodus 34. He even says as much in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, when you get to the end of the book, right? And the plant dies and the worm, the worm comes and the, eats the plant and all this stuff. And Jonah prays, right? In Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he says, And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah says he ran because he knew God would relent if the Ninevites would repent. That's what he knew. And he doesn't want God to be merciful and gracious to them. See, Jonah's problem is not an intellectual problem. It's not with his mind. Jonah knows this, the character of God. He knows the nature of God. Jonah's problem is not intellectual, but it's volitional. It's in his will because Jonah doesn't want what God wants. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want God to be merciful to his enemies. He doesn't want God to pardon. He wants them punished. He's not reflecting the nature of God, the character of God, the image of God in which he was created. Not at all. And listen, church, the longer that we run away from God's felt presence and descend into the darkness, the less human we become and the less human we become, the more we love the darkness. There is that cyclical pattern in our lives. We become shells of the people that God has made us in his image. I think C.S. Lewis captures this well in his book, The Great Divorce. Now, The Great Divorce is a fictional account. Okay? It's not intended to be necessarily a work upon which you hinge all of your theology. Okay? But it's a fictional account. But The Great Divorce describes this tour 
that's given to these men and women who are as ghostly figures who are living in hell. And they take a tour bus to the foothills of heaven. And what they see whenever they arrive and they spill off of the bus is the most radiant, full, and beautiful sight they'd ever seen in their lives. They're no longer in what Lewis describes as a gray town, which is hell. But they're now here at the foothills of this mountain in all of its bright and shining glory. And there they're met by men and women in heaven who are these spirits who implore them to leave behind Greytown and they promise to help them travel to the mountains that lie on the horizon. And they describe them as a place of inexplicable joy. And they promised them that as they traveled towards the mountains, they would become more and more substantial. And thus share in real and full and radiant life in the presence of this eternal joy. Lewis is describing this, this encounter that they have. And he says whenever they were living in Greytown, they're, they're like see-through. They're like transparent individuals. Right? They're just like this vapor. But whenever they encounter these men and women who have come down from the foothills of heaven, they are solid. You can't see through them. They're not transparent. They're opaque. Right? The light doesn't pass through. And as Lewis narrates this journey that they're experiencing as they move from Greytown up towards the mountains that lie over the horizon, these individuals, these men and women who had been ghosts, they progressively are becoming more and more and more substantial and less and less and less hollow. Now, I said, don't build your theology off of Lewis's great divorce. I don't think there's tour buses that are taking people every day from hell up to heaven. Okay? It's not the point. But the point is this. The point is this. That the further we descend away from the felt presence of God, the more the image of God gets unraveled. All you have to do is look at the news to see it. For those who've cast off God from being the one to whom they submit and to whom they're accountable. Right? And then you see every human life unraveling across the globe in families, in communities, and in nations. When people cast off God as being their king and God, their Lord, right? they cast off His word from being their guide, they're the image of God in which they're created, it's not erased from them, but it gets more and more and more and more and more defaced in their lives as it comes unraveled. But those, you've probably known this from experience as well, whenever you meet those individuals whose yes to God is uncapped. So when God presses, they respond in obedience or repentance or submission. They say yes to the Lord. You know what? Those are the individuals whose lives are most radiant. Those are the individuals whose lives are most full of joy, despite their circumstances. They can experience the same circumstances as the person next to them and be radiant and full of joy and satisfied in Christ because their yes is uncapped and their whole life is laid bare before the Lord. See, that's what's at stake here. Is the more our yes is capped and that we descend away from the felt presence of God, the more hollow 
transparent, unsubstantial, lifeless we become. But the more our yes is uncapped and we're responding in obedience and repentance and submission to God whenever he presses on our lives, the more substantial and joyful and full of life we become. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So how do we make this a reality? How do we make it a reality? And I want to give you one thing this morning. Because what we're dealing with here is not, is, is heart-level issues. Right? So how are we going to dislodge that cement cap over our hearts from saying yes to the Lord? Right? It's, it's not a, a, a three-step program. So I'm going to give you one thing this morning that I believe is the only thing the Bible says that will fracture that cement cap that we have poured over our hearts. And that is this, is to behold the one who uncapped his yes for you. See, in Jonah chapter 1, you have the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Coming to commission Jonah. Coming to call Jonah. Coming to challenge Jonah. Coming to... Get in Jonah's face and rattle his cage, so to speak. It's coming to Jonah. But listen, when you turn over to John chapter 1, what you will discover is not the word of the Lord coming to us. But in John chapter 1, we read this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down in verses 14 to 17 of John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from him fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, the Word is God Himself, and the Word becoming flesh is Jesus Christ incarnate. And whenever you read John's Gospel account, and you get to the end of the book, this Word that has come in flesh has come for us. That's why He's crucified. That's why the nails pierce his hands and his feet and the crown is pressed upon his brow and he's raised up on the cross as a substitute for sinners. Now listen, church, so long as we only understand and see the word of God coming to us, then we're always going to look at that word coming to us and go, Man, God's given me more rules. He's given me more commands. He's given me more mandates. He's dictating more things that I've got to do. And it's not until you see the Word of God coming for you that you get a glimpse of God's heart and His love for you and I that He would spare not His own Son, but He would send Him not just to us as a prophet to teach us but he would send him for us as a son to live and die in our place. And whenever you see God's word not only coming to you, but for you, it unlocks 
That's the only thing that can fracture that cap around your heart. To say yes to God. To respond with obedience and faith. Otherwise, we end up like Jonah. And we run, and we run, and we run because we don't want restraints. We don't want to hear what we don't want to hear until we hear that God has not only come to us, but for us. So uncap your yes, church. Where is it that God has been pressing on you? I know where he's been pressing on me. As I said last week, sometimes as I prepare these sermons week after week, I get, it, it, it's like punching me in the gut. It's like an uppercut in the chin, knocking teeth out every once in a while. I need some smelling salts to wake up on Friday before I can come and preach on Sunday because it's been dealing with me all week long. So I know where God's been pressing on me, but where is he pressing on you? Where is his felt presence? Where is his felt presence bringing conviction or bringing challenge? Where do you need his felt presence, perhaps even to bring encouragement in a word of life? Lift your eyes and see Christ crucified coming for you. Because it is he whose image that God is aiming to restore in you so that what's been unraveled by our descent into darkness can be put back together as we find him who is the light. Where do you need to say yes this morning? Let me pray for us. Father, this morning I pray that you would pierce our hearts, that your spirit would bring conviction in our souls. You would teach us what it means to submit and to obey. What it means to repent and to rejoice in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Help us not to run to run away. But to know the very thing that Jonah knows, that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, who delights in extending forgiveness. And I pray that because that was extended to us through Christ, I pray that would fracture the caps that we've placed on our hearts and that we would say yes to you today regardless of where it is that you're placing your finger. For those of us who have been reluctant to serve, I pray that we would serve others around us. For those who have been reluctant to give, I pray that we would open up and give out of the resources you've given. For those of us who've been reluctant and ignoring your felt presence in the area of our lives of, of leading and initiating ministry, God, would you 
Help us to stop running away and begin to run toward and find a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. For those of us who have been running away from your call to purity in our lives, Father, may you help us become more and more human and less and less animalistic and creatureliness and just yielding to our passions and our appetites. As we say yes to you. So speak, O Lord. Give us the grace we need to obey. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.